0: Welcome
1: back, everyone. I'm here with Dr. David Morehouse, who was a member of one of the US military's remote viewing programs. Welcome, David. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be on the show. Give us a brief background of your military experience, which I think is extensive.
0: Hi, Sean. First, yeah, thanks for having me here. It's, it's really an honor to be here. Um, I think you're doing great work with what you're doing. So thank you for asking me. I I was a third-generation Army officer. Uh, My son is a command sergeant major in military police now. So I kind of felt like uh, I fit in the Army. My father prepared me to go in the Army. And being in the Army, I felt, was my purpose uh, because I I did it well. Now, one of the things I found out through life uh, and opened by remote viewing, which we'll talk about, is the fact that, You know, being on purpose, your purpose is not necessarily defined by what you do well in life. People sometimes find that shocking, but it it is true. Uh, Your purpose may not be the thing that you're doing well. Maybe you were supposed to reach and do something different. Anyway, I found myself into uh, that glide slope, uh, as you said, of being an Army officer. And I knew that I wanted to be an Army officer that moved Uh, as quickly as he could as an infantryman to get into special operations and to be a ranger company commander, a ranger battalion commander, whatever I needed to do to get there. I was first stationed in the Republic of Panama and uh, came in as a mortar platoon leader, but my great awakening there was to become the, the general's aide to Kenneth C. Lure, who was the man who reformed 1st Ranger Battalion under the Creighton Abrams Charter back in 1974. That's a whole story in and of itself. But the great, uh, you know, the great pleasure for me, and the, it, it just, it formed me as an Army officer, not because I was a General's aide, but because I was a General's aide to that Batman. Uh, probably one of the finest battle commanders we know, and absolutely, certainly, <clears throat> he was the finest trainer that the Army has ever developed i talking about a guy that was a national wrestling champion at the university of Iowa. This guy understood performance oriented training he, and he understood it in such a way that it was, it was a religion for him. I mean, everything that he did was, you know, training is everything and everything is training. And it was an amazing experience to be with him, to understand his leadership style uh, and to understand training. He taught me how to be a trainer, which is important in all of this <clears throat> i went off to or went stayed there in panama when he left i was an aide to fred warner uh, became the four star that uh, became the four star that uh, uh that george bush senior relieved just before the u.s army invaded panama uh, relieved him as the sink south commander uh, i learned a great deal from him as well mostly on the political scene uh, i then <clears throat> Uh, It was given command of Alpha Company Airborne 3rd of the the 5th Battalion, which was an unusual thing, because typically that was a command that was given only to senior majors, and I mean to senior captains getting ready to make major, and I was given command of it as a first lieutenant. I barely outranked the young officers under my command. Uh, I was there for an extended command time, again, uh, almost two years, and I really, really found that I loved that. I loved being a company commander. Uh, Did that, uh, left Panama. And uh, because the battalion commander of 1st Ranger Battalion was Wes Taylor, and he had been the commander of 3rd Battalion, 5th Infantry, when I was the Alpha Company Airborne Commander there, uh, I knew uh, that I was going to be able to get into 1st Ranger Battalion as you know, to get into 1st Ranger Battalion is not typically how good you are. It's about who you know and who's seen you do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't be there to be a platoon leader unless you've been a platoon leader somewhere. Well, successfully. You can't be a company commander unless you've been one before elsewhere. Uh, so everything is, you've tried and true, at least in the perspective of that commander. Uh, and so you're there. Same thing if you're going to be a battalion commander. you Ranger Battalion commander. You have to have commanded A battalion elsewhere successfully and typically uh you know an air uh, some sort of an airborne battalion so i found myself there and when i first got there i ended up being uh, uh, a deputy s3 assistant s3 and after that i ended up getting the personnel job i was going to take alpha company but that would have put me in position of another commander another guy had been there for longer Mm -hmm. than me and so that was going to cause some uh, animosity so the battalion xo asked me uh, if i would be willing to take that guy's job as the s1 and let him take charlie company which i was happy to do uh within a year i was given bravo company and at that point i now got to put into play all the things again that i learned from kenneth c lure this time with rangers as opposed to paratroopers uh you know you're plussed up 240 plus men it's an amazing experience, right? Uh, it, the, at that time, the entry uh, scores for an officer, minimum entry scores, was, I think they called it a GT test. Is that what they called it? Do you, if you remember?
1: Oh, I, I think that's long before my time.
0: Yeah. Well, it was a, a sort of a general aptability test that they made everybody take. So officers had to their cutoff score for officers is 115. And okay. average GT score in a Ranger Battalion of the, of the junior enlisted guys that were there was 131. So you had kids that were smart and capable and motivated. And not that you didn't have problems, but they were amazing soldiers. And to be part of that, right, with those soldiers and those NCOs was just the greatest honor anybody could ever have. It was like truly the pinnacle of my military career to be there. Uh <clears throat> I I trained and trained and trained, and we did to the, you know, we were good enough to be sent on a lot of missions and a lot of things, but the bottom line is that eventually, uh, the Department of the Army came to the Ranger Regimental Commander, who was Joe Stringham at the time, and said, we need to send a ranger company to Jordan to represent the United States to train train a Jordanian ranger battalion. And we wanted all to be live fire and such and such. Well, nobody fired more rounds than I did in my company. In fact, it was in the rounds of millions and millions of rounds we would fire. In fact, my youngest CO, just as a side story, my, uh, my son, as a first sergeant, in his last deployment to Afghanistan, actually was assigned to the Ranger Regiment. Uh, because he's in the military policeman, they built a facility, detainee facility, and the, the command sergeant major of the regiment, uh, happened to be a kid that was an E four underneath his company. Commander. Oh wow, yeah, <clears throat> isn't that crazy? And so my son tells me, you know, he te- texts back or emails back to me and says, "Hey, you know, Command Sergeant so and so is here. Yeah, he was E four in your company." And I, so I go, "Give me his email address." And I sent this email to him and I said, "Hey, Command Sergeant Major, <laughs> don't tell any bad war stories about me to my son. Only good stuff." It was funny the exchange between the two of us. And he told my son that your dad, we all thought that your dad was training ranger slots, ranger school slots for ammunition (laughs) because I was shooting so much ammo. I mean, I would empty everything because it was important. The live fire exercises we were doing were critical. So we went to Jordan and in this Jordanian training exercise, we were in a place called uh, we were all over the place there, but as we started live fire training of the Jordanian Rangers, <clears throat> it was an entire battalion of Jordanian Rangers. We were in a place called uh, Bata el Ghoul. i was told was translated as belly of the beast i could be wrong in the pronunciation but right. in this place it was kind of a unique place because it had the narrow gauge railroad uh that was that was built by the germans under contract of the turks at the turn of the century uh, I actually have a piece of that railroad sitting right across from me uh, i asked if i could blow it up <laughs> like like lawrence of arabia did right, right bedouin raiders same railroad uh and i was given permission yeah blow it up so i blew a giant hole in this thing while well, my men did i didn't and uh yeah a big piece of it landed fairly close to me so i kept that brought it home it's always been a reminder to me of that place uh the hodge road ran there in some cases mm-hmm. well, <clears throat> to the uh to the railroad but it kind of moved in this serpentine fashion through this valley right it's really Sometimes it would disappear beneath a sand dune and pop up on the other side. But to, it was just a, kind of a an odd elevated moonscape with these historical items that were there. So it became a very unique place. Uh, we had been there for at least a week. <clears throat> and I guess it was probably around the 8th or ninth day. We were doing a large uh, deliberate attack on a 10 bunker series. And what would typically happen in those cases is we would send one platoon in to build the bunkers, and then we would swap everybody around to go after the bunker facilities that the other guys built. And it, of course, had all of the triple standard concertina and everything else around it. It was laden with obstacles. It was a live fire. And we had targets with feedback inside the bunkers uh, to tell if you were successful in uh, killing the occupants of those bunkers weren't real people in the bunkers just targets so we had a support by fire position uh we had uh, you know an entire companies of machine guns in that support by fire position and two attached jordanian machine guns Uh, we had to loan them ammunition because they didn't have ammunition really to, to fire the weapons and uh there was clearly a training deficiency there they didn't know what our gunners knew now why would rangers be there to train jordanians well a lot of different reasons uh, you know they were an ally but at the end they were they were they were plagued by some syrian uh you know religious assassinations and things like that uh but they're they hated israel which they continued to call palestine and because of that even then you would have a Jordanian battalion commander draw a weapon and point it and start shooting over toward Israel, uh, claiming I would kill any of them I saw now, which now you understood why the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence force, right, <coughs> incursions into Jordan as kind of their final graduation because they will kill them if they find them. So we're there, clearly, at least in their minds, training them to, to eventually kill Israelis. Or, or maybe defend against Syrians, right? You know, uh, the black wave coming in from that black wave being <clears throat> defined as uh, just this uh, monotheism that was starting to develop in the region at the time. Well, it was well on its way since 79. But here we are, and I'm doing this training. And I move with the with the lieutenant in the assault element. And we have some attached uh, Jordanians moving with us. And my job there is purely just to observe and evaluate that, that role. Mm-hmm. It's not a company exercise. But the idea is, as you know, they put suppressive fire on all the bunkers. And then at a given signal, they can shift Lift fire and shift. Fire, right. Right? shift fire off to cover nine bunkers and leave you know, one bunker. On, For the on, assault arm. Right. right. So you breach the obstacle. Uh, which was done, and as the obstacle was breached, I can remember that yellow, a yellow smoke went out, which was the visual signal to shift fire to the gun teams. Uh, and then I know that there was a uh, <clears throat> there. I could know that I was waiting for the opskid to be transmitted, and I was about uh, maybe two meters behind uh, this lieutenant Owens, whose father ended up being uh, the director. Of the Defense Intelligence Agency when I was there as a remote viewer, isn't that crazy? yeah, it's crazy, uh, yeah, so Lieutenant Owens is a brand new uh as i recall brand new uh, rifle platoon leader uh he was the weapons platoon leader, and as we're moving along there, I can remember we were all kind of squatting down because the things were breached, but live fires going on, and as we're kind of crouched down and some squatting. I had an RTO behind me. He had his RTO, but I was watching him. And for some reason, I can remember this, I had a fixation on the back of his hand. And
1: real quick, real quick for the, the audience, RTO radio telephone operator, the radio guy. Radio guy. Sorry. Uh, I'll check I'll from time to time because okay. um, there are a few times I kind of like, I know exactly what he's talking about, but some people are going to be confused. <laughs>
0: yeah, you're right. I, I'm, I'm good with asthma corrections. So go ahead anytime. Thank you for doing that. So I was fixated on his hand with the handset, which is connected to the radio. And I was, I don't know why, but I was i was watching this hand because I was looking for the the crimp, you know, to know that he had pressed the, push the talk button and was giving the mm-hmm. opposite. And that was my focal point. And then it was like somebody changed a television channel on me. I mean, that was the best way to describe it. <clears throat> Suddenly I found myself, like standing in something, standing in a realm, in a different place, with something in front of me, and I called it in the book uh, "Psychic Warrior," which I hate that title because I don't consider myself psychic, but that's what St. Martin's Press called it. And mm-hmm. I'm, I suddenly find myself confronted by uh, an entity or a being, an angel, a messenger, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I used the language that I had some degree of familiarity with an Angel. And and it it said to me that I had chosen the wrong path in life and that I was to choose a new path. And uh, there were other things that went on in there, which I have interpreted over the years, but that was the most poignant aspect of that exchange, not even exchange, uh, just me listening to that. And then all of a sudden almost as fast as it as the channel changed one direction it came back and when i came back and i started i was looking on my back up at my rto my radio telephone operator and other other rangers standing around going the company commander just got hit in the head with a bullet and what had happened in the actual investigation you know, and the helmet is there i'm sure you'll put it in post-production but uh, what happened is one of the Jordanian machine gunners, either by design or accidentally, uh, foolishly, uh, shifted his gun in the wrong direction. And he sprayed an estimated 75 to 100 rounds of what could be called from the position grazing fire, one, one meter off the ground. And he mm-hmm. swept it back and forth through the Rangers. So it have been very difficult, you know, to say that that was a, purely an accident because, He could clearly see where he was shooting. Anyway, what happened to him, I don't know. But what I do know is none of my rangers were hit. They all had stories to tell, like holes in their blouses or missing cap off their canteen or something else. But nobody was hit uh, except for me. And the bullet didn't pierce my skin. It hit about two and a half inches above my right eye uh, in my helmet and the Kevlar helmet caught it. So it didn't ricochet off, <clears throat> where only a portion of that kinetic energy, you know, hits you. Uh it went straight into the Kevlar and was caught. And so it snapped my those that saw me said it snapped my head back and my body kind of followed and it took me off my feet. And then I just fell flat on the ground and didn't move. Uh that's I don't remember exactly, but it's what, 2832 feet per 2nd I mean, if you do the calculation, that's a lot of kinetic energy, even with the mass of that round to uh felt kind of like being hit with a baseball bat, I think, maybe in the helmet. Uh But I, it, I didn't obviously have, did not have time to register that, but I had that experience. Now they picked me up, dust me off because they pulled my helmet off and they can see that the Kevlar was not broken. I have a, a lump forming on my, uh, you know, in my right, you know, lobe, temporal lobe here. And, uh, It got bigger and bigger to the point that I couldn't put my helmet back on, and I was still kind of dazed about the whole thing, about what happened. So uh, we continued with that exercise, but I pulled back and the battalion commander came in. Uh, The battalion surgeon looked me over, uh, and those of you that that know this, I mean, when you're in the ranger uh, battalion, if you're injured in some way or cannot perform your duty in some way, they remove you. Uh, because the job is too important and the deployment, you know, for a real mission is a very short time and they aren't going to try to stuff a company commander in there if you can't do your job. They're going to stuff one in now and now finished with your company command. They uh, looked me over very carefully and made the determination that I probably had just a hematoma. Uh, uh, The issue is that Closed head injuries and and TBI was not in the lexicon of medicine, military medicine at the time. So there was nothing they would have even considered. Like if that happened in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? Now they have the concussion standards. If you've been blown up twice uh, yet, they pull you out, right? Well, there's all Mm -hmm. that. Uh, That didn't exist then. So yeah, I kind of staggered around a little bit uh, for a while. Uh, And eventually the deployment was over, but before it was over, I had a conversation with the battalion chaplain about the vision that I had had, and I had a good rapport with this guy. I mean, when he came around asking to do services, I would always stop what was happening and say, those of you that want to go, go and get everybody to go do that to support him, where I, I think others would not. But I, I had a background in all of that. And so I was happy to support him and get rangers over there if they wanted to be. <clears throat> he was, I felt, a good friend. But when I shared with him the experience that I had, he really balked. And he balked quickly. I mean, he looked as though I you know, had an appendage hanging out of my head very quickly. Uh-huh. And, you know, grew out of my head. Which troubled me some, but substantiated kind of my, where I was going in my beliefs about you know, organized religion and things. But we'll talk about that if that if it comes to that later. <clears throat> so he shut down. He really had nothing to offer and he was kind of disturbed that I had even brought it up. Uh so I backed out of that conversation and tried to make it go away, which it sort of did. But not I did, to
1: pick on the not to not to pick on the the chaplain, but what <clears throat> denomination was he? I'm just curious.
0: Well he wasn't Catholic. And he and he wasn't Jewish. Uh, so it would have been something else, Protestant or something along those lines. Okay. But he wasn't Mormon either. He wasn't he wasn't <clears throat> he was not L D S. No, it wasn't a Mormon. Okay. <clears throat> Although he knew I was. And right. uh, which is one of the reasons why we frequently talked about different things, right? Because it's two Christian religions and you're gonna anyway, you get the exchange. So I, I felt that very odd. And I felt somewhat rejected, but it became a precursor experience to what you're able to talk about and not talk about. You know, in your life, in your with the people around you. Uh, you
1: would think that someone in the whose entire career is based on the spiritual realm would be a little bit more open to these sorts of possibilities.
0: You would think that uh, the difficulty that I immediately had with it is that. You know in organized religion it's a belief structure based on faith obviously and uh, if you don't have faith which meaning you question the belief structure uh, then that disc that discontinues your ability to uh, to attain what comes after you die which is omnipresence omnipotence omniscience eternal life right that's what's said uh, and the issue for me was uh, i had never questioned that really but i wasn't really ultimately a big believer in it and you know it was one of the things i struggled with in being in the being in the bishopric. i mean being a high priest in the mormon church because this now meant that i was kind of at the pinnacle of things and that um i was an individual that sat in judgment of other individuals like did you do this or did you do that? And if you did, I would choose to present you. You know, I would say along with the other members of that of that first of that presidency, whether stake or you know a, a ward, they call it <clears throat> the stake being larger. And I sat. You know, the question was for me, uh, being a guy who didn't have the experiences. That you would think a high priest in the LDS church would have, which made me feel like a hypocrite uh, because I would stand up and say that I knew this or I knew that or I had received this revelation for myself and my family. And the truth is, you know, I never heard the word of God or Christ or anything else. Now, I know that some people listening, if that could say, well, then that's just you. But uh, I was a pretty smart guy. And, uh, you know, I analyzed things well And uh, problem solved, you know, as you and I were talking, and I felt myself, I just felt the hypocrisy of being in that role. And now I'm in this place where suddenly something happens to me that's clearly outside the physical for me. And I didn't understand. I've never had an experience like that before.
1: How real did it feel, actually? Did it feel more real than physical experience? Or was it a vision? Was was it dreamlike? Real to me,
0: as I recall it. It felt equally real. I mean, I didn't feel like I was looking at something through the static of of a you know some sort of a lens. I felt like I was there. I felt like I feel the heat of being there. I felt like I could you know uh, fear. I could feel the fear. I could feel the confusion. I could feel I was aware of uh, the voice. I was aware of the appearance. I was aware of everything. But these things became, I'm sure, I know you know uh, creations of just my conscious mind. Uh, attempts to decode that information. I mean, according to Elizabeth Rauscher, PhD, you know, uh, humans cognate faster than the speed of light. So human thought cycles faster than the speed of light. That's an amazing. Uh, that's an amazing concept. If you ever want to go look at it, Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher. It's amazing uh, to think about the fact that human beings cognate faster than the electrons in a computer and that's true remember uh, as i showed you that's part of the first earth battalion which we'll get to later but here we were uh i now find myself standing over next to the ranger battalion commander the jordanian ranger battalion commander and i don't know what prompted me to say this i mean i was so filled with confusion right about what had happened that standing there with him looking at it and knowing that he's a very religious man praying five times a day, I thought I might try to see what I could get out of him in the interpretation. And so I shared with him, I said, you know, the other day when I was shot and he started to apologize, I was, sir, I'm, sir, you don't need to apologize. What I want to ask you about is something happened to me when I got hit in the head. I had this vision about something to which I thought or was expecting what I was getting out of the chaplain, which was complete dismissal of, you know, and maybe go whisper to my battalion commander that you need to take care of this guy. Instead, when he turned around, he looked at me and he said, you shouldn't be surprised. Do you know where you are? And to wit- That's where I found out the name of the valley. And, and th- defined as the belly of the beast. And it was supposed to be a haunted valley. In fact, he goes, haven't you heard my men shrieking and crying out at night in their tents? The, their battalion was probably five to 700 meters away from my company, we were, where we were bivouacked. Uh, and at night, yes, you could hear people over in that area shrieking out or you know crying. But we didn't really, we didn't understand what it was. We didn't know if it was part of what they were doing. Uh, had no idea, really. So we just didn't piece those together. But the battalion commander said, this is a haunted valley. He said, "Any, you know, my men believe that there are banshees and ghosts, you know, moving at night through this through this valley." Uh, and he goes, "You know, if the if the tent flap rattles in such a way that, you know, that they don't expect it, they will shriek out in terror." Which I thought, "Wow, I, I mean, I didn't see anything like that or experience anything like that," but it was curious of me to hear that from a tank commander. Uh, mm-hmm. That he didn't dismiss it; he just said. That's my men are, you're very frightened of it. He, like he presented it as though, yeah, I'm not frightened of it though, but my men are very frightened of it. So that was where we were until we went to other missions and eventually the swelling in my head went down, but uh, it was a very bizarre experience for me. And then we deploy back. Uh, and when we deploy back, uh, it's time for me in a couple of months to turn over my two or three months to turn over my company. i uh, been there a long time as a company commander, done my best to train my men, get them ready for war, and I was, yeah, I was on to the next assignment. I was originally scheduled to go to be an aide to an Italian general in Vicenza, uh, and I ended up, uh, now I had orders to go to the defense language school to learn Italian. So I thought that would be really fun, and uh, the day I changed command, uh, Keith Nightingale, my battalion commander, came over, put his arm around me, and said, "I've got some bad news. Your job in Vicenza just went away." Uh, The guy picked the guy in country who already speaks Italian. So now I was a free agent, as you know, uh, Sean, a guy now with no assignment, but a guy with two company commands and two generals' aides, and you know, good good efficiency reports. Yeah, some recruiting officer, I mean, not recruiting, but an assignment officer was going to go like, oh, yeah, we're going to send you to ROTC duty or recruiting command or reserve component duty. Because why? Because you know, you've you run fast through the pack and here you go now. And I was so afraid of that. I was deathly afraid of that. I did not want to go someplace like recruiting command. I, I, I could have stood ROTC duty, but reserve component, I, I mean, back in those days, I mean, I, yeah, I would have. Yeah shot myself or done something. Yeah, well,
1: recruiting command sounds like a, a nightmare because you just, it's all about numbers. And if you get, like, there's a lot of things that are open to chance and, okay. and it could ruin, like it ruins people's careers just simply because they don't hit numbers for
0: no other reason. Yes. Which that, that kind of pressure tends to corrupt the NCOs are doing the recruiting and that corrupts upward. Uh, and they're doing it because they, they, well, the NCOs are making bonuses for recruiting, right? They get more money so that's their incentive i just always felt like pardon the you know the expression and pardoned anybody who ever served in recruiting community. those of us who didn't kind of saw it as like car salesman <laughs> tactics right people running <laughs> around like grabbing people pulling them over and telling them about how these how all these great things they can do and and then getting them into the army uh, which in many cases maybe they didn't want to be there in the first place but that's another story. Uh, so I was really worried about that. So Colonel Nightingale said, Let me make some calls and I'll see what I can do. Because he came out of the out of JSOC and was part of, you know, the he was part of the uh, of the Delta planners that were setting stuff up to for the Iranian hostage rescue attempt. So he had been in everything that the US Army had done, pretty much, that involved combat up to that time, including Grenada. He was in Grenade. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> he was a good guy. It was connected. And so he makes a few calls and I I get an assignment, a black book assignment, which was a DASER assignment. DASA assignment means you're going to go to the Department of the Army special access roster. And what that means is that they're going to go to infantry branch and they're going to say, give us Captain Morehouse's file. And they're going to take that file and they're going to go downstairs to the, the other floor and they're going to take it into the dasser room. And it goes into a dasser file, which means now that nobody can get access to that file except them. And they also go into the big personnel computer and they remove you uh, from it such that or they block they put you into another cache. So now if somebody has access to one of those computers in an S1 shop or something else and types in Morehouse, it shows up service member not on file. SM not on file. That's a DASA assignment. Uh, sounds really sexy, right? And so, mm-hmm. so I'm like, okay, but oh, but you have to be interviewed for this. So you're gonna have to be interviewed for it. And if they like you, you know, then they'll bring you in. I had never, I had no idea. This was my first special access program. I had no idea what that was gonna be like. And people. This this next part of that story is sounds quite comical, but it is what they did. And I don't know why they did it. And we we you and I talked about, you know, wondering sometimes if you're being played by people. And I mm-hmm. kind of wondered if I was might be being played by that. Maybe like maybe somebody's at that unit who knows me. And so they're gonna they're gonna mess with me to see what I'll do. Uh so I end up going there, I go or report into uh Milperson and I at the Hoffman building in those days. And let them know I'm there, and they go, great. So there was a Holiday Inn, I believe. There's a hotel somewhere somewhere near that, that building. And I go into that Holiday Inn, and I have a room there, and I get to the room, and I'm in the room probably uh, an hour, uh, and I get a phone call. And when I pick up the phone and and answer Captain Morehouse, I, the, the guy, there's uh, a male voice on the other end of the line says, we'll pick you up at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. Come outside the east entrance uh, or whatever that direction of the entrance was, come out the east entrance and have a copy of the Washington Post under your own. And it, it clicked and hung up. My head started to spin because you know, you're you're always trying to meet the performance standard and the objective. And so I was thinking to myself, well, did he say bring today's Washington Post or Tomorrow's Washington post. So I'm actually calling downstairs, you know, to the front desk. When do the Washington posts arrive? Uh, uh, can you hold one for me? Oh no, sir. It's first come first serve. So of course I'm down there at like 530 waiting 30 minutes for the papers to be dropped. So I can grab one. Right. Like, assuming that it will be, you know, and my mind was even toying around with what, maybe I'll take both. Right. They didn't say once, maybe I'll take both. That literally, I know it sounds stupid, but that, kind of, that was my thought process because I'd never been in a special access program. I'd never been in that world, in the Intel world. I really had no idea what this was going to be. Um, I didn't know what the unit was. But so, I mean, I sort of was given a hint, but not a read on. I don't know what they do. So there I am. And sure enough, seven o'clock, they show up. I have the paper in my left arm because I thought I might have to salute. And I, they're in a Chrysler K car, a blue Chrysler K car dark blue and uh that was kind of made me smile but then these two guys go to the back and these are smart looking young men you know wearing suits uh and their hair is not army standard but they mm-hmm. t- get in the back i get in the back we drive to the fort welvor area there is a there is a classified location there uh that we pulled into and we drive up this thing it looked like a giant warehouse and a big Rollback window opened up. I mean, door opened up. The car drove in. The rollback door closes, and uh, we're inside of a giant warehouse. But there's buildings inside this giant warehouse, and those are the secret compartmented information facilities, right? Skiffs, uh, right? And there's it's massive because there are those buildings. There's parking area. There's uh, there's a gymnasium out in the open in the warehouse all these things. And, uh, and then there's a door that goes somewhere that I can't see, but I come in, uh, they take me uh, into the skiff and a psychologist comes over, introduces himself, lieutenant colonel, psychologist, PhD. He hands me a series of tests and I start doing these long, long range 500 questions, Myers-Briggs, and then some other tests and some other tests. Uh, this particular psychologist was detailed to keep his, his thumb on the psychiatric, you know, health of this organization. And if I was going to be coming in there, then they wanted to know what my baseline was, I guess, uh, coming out of the Ranger uh, battalion. So I ended up, I guess, passing the test and passing your oral interview because I was hired, uh, it was come on in and, you know, we'll get you processed. So you go in; it's all—it's crazy. I mean, they give you a, an official passport, which I'd never had one of those before. I was in a suit and tie, you know, your hair already grown out a little bit. Uh, you start to meet people. I was there as the deputy XO, so I was not an operator that was going to go into country and do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, you know, because of this special access program, it was called USAISA, United States Army Intelligence Security Agency uh, Support Agency. And ISA is, uh, was a classified organization. It, it's,
1: it, it's, it's become like the Grey Wolves or the, uh, it's called the Army of Nor- Northern Virginia is, is either yeah. a precursor of the same unit, right?
0: There was a the secret Army of Northern Virginia when I was there, which is Vent Hill Farms. Yeah. Uh, and the headquarters is in the building that I was in now. And it also, there was a guy that wrote a book called Killer Elite. Killer Elite. Uh, if you haven't read that book, you should, if you want to know what I'm talking about. That was the organization. And it listed, I don't even know how he, know how he got away with it, but uh, it listed all the operations, you know, names, places, things, everything, for everything from when they were fog up until they became USAISA. I say. Uh, They're actually codenamed Orange, if you ever hear somebody yeah. say that. Yeah, there's
1: a, there's a book called Relentless Strike by Sean Naylor, um, I think it was published in 2016 it goes into into all these sort of characters I can't remember they're called gray wolf either or or they were gray gray something gray um gray fox that's okay I know I had it
0: wrong but right. it was one of the nicknames that came in that they associated it with early on though not not later on uh, right. when I was there it was royal cape uh, and it was one of the places where I first got to see things at that level I mean Claire George from the CIA and all these people show up for briefings. And essentially I was told by Colonel Tony Lackey because we used to run to work together. I lived uh, literally a hundred feet from him uh, at Fort Belvoir. And so every morning we'd run together and I was like his token Ranger, you know, uh, he was an SF Intel guy. And most mm-hmm. of the guys in FOG or ISA now were in, we're SF guys, special forces now converted there. They were a little bit disturbed by the fact that it was now becoming what's called a purple assignment. Uh, purple means that they're bringing in people from other branches, Navy, mm-hmm. you know, Air Force, Marines. When I was there, one of the first purple suitors came in, which was a Marine officer. He was a good guy. Uh, we were both laughing because he was a Marine. We were laughing at our hairs growing out, right? Uh, and we're wearing suits to work. We were, we just, we were, we were laughing about that but running with Tony, Tony Lackey Colonel Lackey in the mornings was uh fulfilling because we would talk the whole time we didn't run really fast cuz he just didn't run fast he was old he was as old as I am now right or close to it and uh but he was a great conversationalist about he I learned more about the Intel world then and his explanation to me about why the organization existed is because the first time it was understood that it was needed was in the iranian hostage rescue attempt uh they needed it something to support infrastructure right they needed something to get in there to find trucks to find a safe house to find you know landing zones and other stuff they needed somebody that could be well covered in doing something like that so they people became employees of coca-cola to go be Mm on to do that right or some other uh in some cases and not witting in other cases corporations that these operatives were able. To- what
1: is it is it um what are they knocks or not under official cover or not official cover and official cover like there's different
0: yeah. and so yeah I, I mean that was a job i would have th- i think i would have loved to have uh, although i would have stuck out like a sore thumb uh, one of the original criticisms of the organization. Was- when
1: you say that, actually, I was, I was thinking exactly. So going back to your, uh, sorry to interject, but when you're talking about your, your wall street journal story, or, or sorry, your Washington post story. Um, what really st- stuck with me was what you put it under your left arm so you could still salute. Yeah. Whereas what I would have done is I was put it, I would, I would have put it under my right arm just to, try to to because to, that would have been an obvious tell if somebody were trying to find you right anyway sorry I, I had to go back to that
0: you're thinking the way they would have wanted you to think because uh the place was funny ah uh, but i back to just why it existed according to tony lackey was uh the cia focuses on political industrial and economic espionage that's their mm-hmm. primary focus Uh, they didn't want at that time to support this operation in 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 tehran they didn't want to be part of that on some level for whatever reason and this is of course colonel lackey's interpretation of it as the commander of isa but that is one of the reasons they created the organization was actually to start a spy agency within the u.s army that functioned in that way to go do those kinds of things to support clandestine covert military operations in tier one Tier two countries that was kind of the mission statement how they went about doing that was as varied as the commanders and the personnel there it was also a place where when it first started out created a great deal of problems and i know uh i know if you have ever heard of the yellow fruit trials was one of the things that came out Mm -mm. uh it was a time when the military was trying to find a way to build an intel community and capability that didn't ex- or that the CIA wasn't interested in doing because of their mission statement at that time. And so not being people that were good at understanding how to do that. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing the, you know, the situation, of course, but they were throwing money at guys and going, suitcases of money and going because why because you're not going to give them a check because a check now uh, gives a, a way for somebody to trace it to find out you know right who they are where they're getting the money from and stuff like that so no paper trails electronic or otherwise there weren't a lot of electronic paper trails in back in the early 80s or 70s right, right? but still that was the plan did, do try to do trade craft like the cia did and I'm sure somebody had a manual there and was looking at stuff. So they would give a guy money and say, you know, go to Germany and get a job as a bartender or whatever job you can get, use cash to pay for everything. And that's called backstopping yourself, right? So you actually work for the U.S. government, but you're off the books. Nobody knows who you are. They give you suitcases of money, tell you to go in, and and people would go, you want receipts? Like you were going to file a travel voucher, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, no, You don't want receipts. So don't do that. Well, that went on for a while, and a lot of people got involved in that, and then eventually, somewhere along the lines, uh, somebody in the military leadership uh, found out about that, and then you know the the path was burned all the way back down to the guys that were doing it, and then a lot of the young men and women and senior some of in some cases senior officers got completely burned and court-martialed for this. Some people went to prison for it because they said, you know, you're misusing the money, which of course, in some cases they were. You weren't supposed to be using the money to go to a topless bar or it using didn't, money- Didn't like
1: Marchenko, the the founder of SEAL Team Six, wasn't he kind of caught in some of that?
0: Marchenko. I, I think his case was a separate case. I'm not really mm. familiar with it uh, completely. But I believe his case was separate to all of this, but that kind of mindset began to permeate throughout the fledgling new efforts of the U.S. the military trying to replicate what the CIA would do to do it for the military purposes, for, to support clandestine covert military operations, which the CIA didn't necessarily want to do. So right. that's why they got separated, and ISA was at least there. And they were trying to make it so they could keep control of it. They wanted to make it purple. They wanted to get all the services involved in this organization so that they could, you know, control it that way, keep one eyeball on it. The organization, which kind of defined my role there, the organization had really committed some horrible faux pas, uh, like going, you know, whoever it was as a commander going to a going to a party where the Secretary of the Army, John O. Marsh, Jr. was uh, and, you know, talking about something and John O. Marsh, Jr. saying, uh, no, I don't want you guys going there doing that, or I need a more thorough briefing or something like that. Uh, this is, again, a Tony Lackey story, Colonel Lackey. And uh, and apparently Claire George, I mean, not Claire George, but uh, John O. Marsh, Jr. found out that the unit turned around and sent the person anyway. The operator sent them somewhere to do something, and so when that was found out, the unit became burned again on something like that. And so, a very restrictive circle of fifty miles from the center of the Pentagon was uh, drawn and said, "Anytime you move any person, which include vent hell farms and everything else, right? Anytime you move anybody in this organization, before you move them, yeah, you I require you to bring me a briefing, and I will approve." With my signature, that you can allow that person to go here or there. That meant anything. It it didn't mean like only like training. Went to airborne school or something. You got to send somebody to airborne school, not without John O'Marsh Jr.'s signature, right? Send somebody, you know, to go some other place, like on leave, not without his signature. It became so distrusted. He didn't trust that you said, like going on leave." He didn't trust that that actually meant that. So that meant that my deputy XO position actually kind of mutated into this thing called a staff action control officer. And uh, which God, I hated that. I mean, I had these giant three ring binders with all, you know, all the stuff in them that were classified and uh, you, you would be there and you would get the approval from Tony Colonel Lackey, you know, okay, God, go brief that, brief that one. And so I was the guy who found out that every approval for travel or to movement, a movement order for somebody went through 54 different desks in the Pentagon before it got to John o. Marsh, Jr.
1: Yeah, it's not really a good way to kind of maintain a co- covert operation.
0: It was it was typical Pentagon bureaucracy, right? And it was everybody in between uh between the activity and John Omar's junior thinking that they should have a say in all of that so 54 different desks that this would go through you can only imagine the irritation of the unit because sometimes these things would be time sensitive like you know jump school starts 2 weeks from now and these sure. these 40 54 people looking at this thing you know putting comments on something before it got to this John Omar's junior it was horrible so once i found that out and briefed it then it got a shortcut drastically, right? Enough people with the power to step in and go, all of you from here on up are done. (laughs) You don't get to see this. So I then would be able to take that and brief John O'Mars Jr. and say, here's what the UN wants to do, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it was enough that as time rolled by, you know, he started calling me by my first name, which was not unusual because I'm wearing a suit and tie and my hair's long. You know, as long as it is now, maybe longer. But movement began to be expedited, and uh, in this unit, I also saw just a lot of bizarre things that troubled me greatly. Like there was a one operation where they were taking kids that were one of the lieutenant colonels, a special forces guy, was a a Mormon. And he knew that I was, and I found this op that they were sending you know not an operation but but prep training they were taking young military kids who were or were not l d s meaning not mormons right, and they were sending them to the language training mission in Provo, Utah, and to the missionary training center first, and then you go to the language training mission and then these young men were actually soldiers. We're being positioned in various positions throughout Central and South mm-hmm. America or other tier, you know, tier one, tier two countries, proselytizing as missionaries, but collecting intel.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Right? And, yeah. and finally,
1: no, I, that's perfectly logical. I could that's a that's an easy I could see them doing that in the Peace Corps, too. I think there are a number of different ways to to do that.
0: Peace Corps, I wouldn't dispute. I mean, I, I, that I wouldn't dispute yeah. But when they're using the chur- a church in that fashion, I I, I kind of drew a line in my my head was because what I went to the lieutenant colonel, I said, now nah, does the church know you're doing this? I mean, does the first president I would assume they would, don't you think? Yeah. They would what he said. He just they dismissed me. He goes, of course they know. So yeah. that was my first my first yeah. challenge of being a high priest and then being, you know, seeing that kind of thing, other than my own hypocrisy with it, right? Uh, so I wrote a letter to the First Presidency of the Church, and I said, uh, I'm in a position to be aware of this, and I laid it out, you know, very short, one-page letter, and I said, I would really like an explanation as to why you think that this is an appropriate use of young missionaries, because my issue with it, Sean, was that when I was at BYU, lots of the missionaries, that return missionaries, that they, they call them, that were at in university now. You talk with them and they go, Yeah, it was really a good assignment. But you know, I, I mean I enjoyed my mission, but it was tough to get through some of the people because a big percentage of the people thought we were CIA. And I would go, What well, that's just preposterous. How could they think that? You're in the CIA, that's ridiculous. But now I knew.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not I'm not surprised at all.
0: I'm not like this does not surprise me. So I wrote, I sent off my fiery letter demanding information. And of course there was no answer given to it uh right. yeah, because if they gave an answer they get in trouble it goes back to the old cia adage of we that we can confirm nor deny the existence of said program right that's what they do and i so i fired off a second letter six months later referencing the first and uh and there was no answer to that but the bottom mm-hmm. sentence in that paragraph was if you cannot explain this to me, then I wish to be excommunicated from the church immediately. Uh, that never happened. And I, going back to it again, I think that it didn't happen because if they had turned around and excommunicated me, it would have, would have confirmed, right? Right. confirmed right. awareness of the program, which that wasn't really my intent. I didn't secretly put, I was like demanding, like, you're not going yeah, to you may
1: you may have been putting crosshairs on your uh, like oh, yeah. without even knowing it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, very much so. That was that was going on, uh, and so I also caused disturbance in, with this lieutenant colonel. And you know, then what happens is every quarter or so, you're required to do a CI poly counterintelligence polygraph, which basically the you know the the focus of the polygraph is. Have you knowingly or do you know anyone else who's ever you know, divulged classified information? That's what they're looking for, simplistically. Uh, you also have to have a sit-down with this psychologist where, uh, assuming you pass the polygraph, which everybody did. Uh, I mean, most of the people in there have been spies for most of their life in some way in the intel community. They know how to beat a polygraph right in those in those places so
1: you really had nothing to worry about in terms of the polygraph test because i know that people who've had those substance you know they've used marijuana or something like that in the past the best policy going in is just to admit everything absolutely
0: but i will not tell you that you know doing it sitting down for your first ci poly is not unnerving because you're thinking you're thinking like you know Well, what might I have ever done that I shouldn't have done kind of thing, right? Like when that guy, barber in Panama was cutting my hair and he was asking me where I'd been and what I'd done, did I tell him things I shouldn't have told him? I mean, stupid stuff like that runs through your head. So yeah, you know, you take the first poly and, you know, it comes out that no deception indicates. And so you're good. (laughs) Now you go to a meeting with a psychologist. So you're sitting down with a psychologist, which I, I would assume it's not unlike a therapy session back in those days, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the first one I sit down with him, and he you know, goes through his line of questions, and I answer the questions, and then always his last sentence was, "And is there anything else you'd like to talk about?" Which, which I found to be a really creepy approach, right? Like, what do you mean, like? bed wedding or something you know how, how was it said was it said like in a neutral register or was it kind of a suggestive suggestive register it was one time out of the entire list of questions that he was you know checking a block and, oh, and okay he looks straight at you and goes and is there anything else you would like to talk about you know a really kind of invasive prying sort of energy with him uh which put me off the first time that happened and i just said no no sir <laughs> you know and wandered. do you think
1: the army knew about your experience like the the,
0: no. the vision that you had okay I got it very seriously uh, but you know months go by and you know i'm busy busy you know up the pentagon back down pentagon back and comes time another poly uh so in this polygraph the the second one that i did <clears throat> What was in my mind was, you know, my letters off to the first presidency and stuff, because that all sort of happened uh, in, you know, in, kind of in sequence, and i i didn't I didn't get deception indicated, but what I got was what's the term that they use? It's, uh evasiveness or no inconclusive. I'm sorry. Okay, the polygraph is inconclusive. To which Colonel Tony Lackey stepped in and went, Ah, so what? Because he wasn't going to dismiss me or get rid of his token ranger uh, for an inconclusive uh, polygraph, but the CI guys were like, you're going to have to keep an eye on this guy because it's not, you know, no deception indicated. It's, you know, he's in the blurry area between deception and, you know, non-deception. And I understood they're doing their jobs, but it it still was, to me, I chopped it up. It chalked it up as kind of a, like, well, what's going on with me? That that would happen, right? Yeah. Now. right.
1: Well, yeah. it, so- it sounds like I mean the fact that you had reached out to to the church about that practice. I mean that would make me a little bit nervous. That's borderline. It's borderline disclosure of
0: yeah. Yeah, disclosure. It is. You're right. Uh, I will yeah. tell you that 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 I uh, probably should have thought about it that way. But again, um, I mean, I was fully read onto the program and I understood it all, and you know, understood the secrecy. I understood everything we were doing there, uh, but I was really opposed to this idea of, to me, it just seemed like inappropriate, you know, crossing a line. Uh, and it, the church shouldn't have been approached, and the church should never have agreed to do it. But I will say, jumping way ahead, uh, well after, I was well out of the Army, and I happened to do a radio show in Cedar City, Utah. And it mm-hmm. was a format radio show, so it was on like four hours. After I get off, the guy that arranged this, his, his name is uh, Wark, and uh, he was a former Marine. Uh, he's a great, this is a great story, but we won't go segue to it. But he ended up get or he goes, he knew I was a Mormon. And so he organizes this assembly of Mormon people that all were eating dinner and coming together. And they came there to hear me, to hear me talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so there must have been 50 people in the room, and I, you know, told the story about what I was doing, how I got remote view, blah, blah, blah. And then I also told this story to them about the first presidency and the the kids that were not even LDS going to the missionary training center and language training uh, mission and then going off to a mission. And every one of them, to a man and a woman, looked at me and went, so? If that's what the first presidency wants to do, then okay. I just was like, I just thought, you know, my, it's, that's not me. Right. I was like, again, back in my space of, no, I, that's like bowing down to the North, like it's like to salt Lake city that whatever they say is right and divine and inspired by God. I was like, no, 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 no. You know, they're human beings and I don't care what they say. That isn't right. We should not be sitting those. first of all, you're putting them in danger. You're putting them in danger, right? And if you're putting two of them in danger because they're always companions, or what if there's one of them that's one of these guys, and the other one's just a genuine kid out of, you know, burnt scrotum Arizona that suddenly finds himself in, you know, Nicaragua, you know, proselytizing, and they get picked up and they both get tortured or that something else, and it could have happened, could have happened in a blink of an eye. Any of those things could have happened. So. I found it, uh, and I assure you that God was not going to protect them if that, if that was the issue. You know, that's not going to happen. Uh, so anyway, they, were, they cracked me up and, again, put me into a state of confusion because it was like, nobody sees this my way in the church. Nobody sees it. And I, and I get it. I mean, I get that. Uh, but they think that that was just supporting the nation and that it was okay. If you want to use our church name and, and our church mission, go ahead. Uh I just didn't see it that way. Uh, maybe that's it's a flaw in how my lens, how I see the world. But I just no, no, I I
1: I can actually see both sides pretty well, but I think I my my level my level of cynicism is probably much higher than than yours. Cause for me, I was like, of course they did that. Like What? <laughs> You know, like I was completely shocked. I mean, I, but,
0: uh, I didn't even, I was speechless when I first her.
1: Yeah. From from a moral standpoint, it's, it's feels really dirty. But if you, if you look at it from an amoral point of view, this is why I get Putin right so much, so much, yeah. is because I just, I just <laughs> say, forget emotions. What's like, what's min max? What's the real politic of the situation? What will kind of um, maximize the objective of, of you know, what I'm trying to achieve. And when, when I do that, I get him right most of the time. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I, but I can, see, I can see both sides. Like if I, were the, if I were the CIA looking in, that's a perfect, perfect, like not even perfect program, even if they're not gathering intelligence, it's a perfect training opportunity to develop sources over a longer period of
0: time. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, in, in Central and South America was the fastest growing church at the time and so if you're going to put people boots on the ground you know and get and give them free access to move around under that using that kind of a cover uh and you know in the church there are lots of people that are in and out that are many of them very high influence people that are you know part of the ward or part of the stake or i mean if it's a stake president uh, which the leader of that's a leader of like five six seven wards that's a can be upwards of you know 12 1500 people in some cases not always but it could be that much and that's in access and influence to all the shakers and movers and, that are in that area and i i understood it as well but i was very troubled by it and because i was not an intel guy and i was you know well,
1: I, well, here, here's a scary thing like that's
0: counted that. in a very round hole
1: And and to be very clear, I want to make sure the audience—I'm very clear to the audience about this. You're not saying the CIA is is doing that. What what you're saying is the military. Yeah, this is military. Yeah, just 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 to be clear, I don't. You know, I'm not saying the CIA is not doing it, but we're not sitting here saying that the CIA is doing it. No. Um, But but this is the only place that they do this, right? Like, there's if you talk to any security officer, uh, like an IT security type in Silicon Valley. Intelligence agencies are constantly trying to infiltrate, like the Twitters of the world and the Facebooks of the world, because um, you know if you look at the Green Revolution as an example, uh, that ha- you know happened in the Middle East, which where, there was one country that was notice- noticeably completely immune to it. Which country was that? Saudi Arabia. Okay, and the one thing that this what they did in Saudi Arabia is that w- there was um, an issue. With Bahrain, um, so I think Saudis sent troops there, but there was a you know there's a, an opposition that's fueled by the Iranians, right? The Shia contingent um, in Iran, small small group, and there was a kind of an opposition opposition leader, and the way that the the Saudis were able to completely shut down that Green Revolution was by leveraging social media and Twitter to cast the opposition. As an Iranian proxy, and then all of a sudden, all the Sunnis, the Wahhabists, instantly descended in an attack on you know the Shia, and no no green revolution in Saudi Arabia.
0: Yeah, it was it was parallel to the, uh, the what they used to call they called the cassette revolution, which was how uh, actually how uh, in Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in exile, how his message actually got out. He was recorded on cassettes and the thousands of those cassettes were sprinkled around the country. uh, And that's how they fueled the Iranian revolution in 79, which is why it's called the cassette revolution. Okay. So, so back, back, sorry, I'm the one who took us off track, but
1: back to the psychologist or the psychiatrist
0: part of the world. So yeah, I'm yeah. sitting down with the psychologist and uh, I'm already kind of like half stung by having an uh, you know, inconclusive my polygraph. Now I'm sitting down with this guy. Now, just to set the stage, it's like this guy has seen and heard everything as, a, as have I in this unit. Uh, and why is there a psychologist detailed to be there? Because this place, this place has the potential to rot people. I mean, it I, I personally witnessed a fist fight at the drinking fountain by a sergeant major and a lieutenant colonel, both married men, <laughs> fighting over a redheaded E4 who was not married. And I mean, I personally saw that. I mean, that was one of the guys that helped pull the guy off, you know, Lieutenant Colonel off. Uh, You just see that kind of stuff, and you really start to wonder, like, "Geez, man, this place has the." And it's not the people; it's because they are caught up in this world of, of deception, uh, deception. Yes, where you know it's it's like where the good things and the evil things begin to lose the line of distinction, and you you don't know which side of it you're standing on, right? You don't know. It becomes corruptible to Just how you are and how you think and how you act in the world. Families fall apart. Extraordinarily high divorce rates. I mean, some of the guys in there are on their sixth marriages. And uh, this was just in a headquarters building. But there are also other funny things about it. It's like I had all my stuff that, you know, being a cavalry commander. I mean, I'm I'm in there with all my trophies, you know, my iron mics from the schools i have been follow me trophies and all this stuff. And one of those guys that was these died in a, was there when it was fog, who was the he was a an eternal major. He was he had been there a very long time as a major. He had done something so bad they were never going to promote him to lieutenant colonel. So he was there and he was pro, patrolling up and down the hallway and he came to my office and he stuck his head in. And he looks at my office, and I'm like, hey. And he he just does this look, pulls his head back out and walks away. Next thing I get is I get called into Colonel Lackey's office. I'm I'm yes, sir. And he goes, well, yeah, you know, so-and-so came by and said, you know, I, he goes, he handed me this. And I look at it, and he goes, why is this new guy, Morehouse, got his self-aggrandizing museum in his office? <laughs> so... So I ended up packing all of my stuff up, you know, and putting it away because you're, he was right. We're not supposed to display, we're not supposed to be military. So why would we display all of our crap around it?
1: well But, but here, here's the thing on the behavior though, that, um, why didn't he tell you what, what I was about to curse. Why didn't, why didn't this major tell you that to your face? And again, that's indicative of this sort of a culture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, much rather go around and just attack straight at the leadership and see what he can generate. Right. Yeah. And he outranked you too. Like he, right. Yep. At the time. I was still a captain. Yeah. 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 It was funny. I mean, it just every event after event made me look at that and go, geez, man, maybe I should have gone to recruiting command. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am truly not, I'm a fish out of water. I mean, I, yeah smart enough to know how to do the job and what I'm supposed to do. And fortunately my credentials up to that point, you know, were stellar and, and Colonel Lackey knew that. So, but they, you know, I just, there were other things like notes that would go flying by to Lackey or to my, this other Lieutenant Colonel that was kind of my boss who was the actual XO. I was the deputy XO and uh, Lowry, I think his name was. And, Lowry call me and he goes, hey, you know, look, check this out, because he was laughing at it. And there would be some comment by some special forces major in the back, like saying, you know, we don't consider Rangers special, special operations, and they really don't need to be here and know everything we're doing and blah, 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 which was me. There's only one Ranger there. That was me. Okay. So, all uh, right, maybe they read the TV. I have no idea. Bottom line, here I am now with the psychologist, and we're getting ready to the bottom question is there anything else you'd like to tell me about and so i kind of rolled my chair back and i looked at him and i said actually there is to which his eyebrows went up like no shit pardon me you know looking at me like really go, yeah because i'm sure everybody else said no and i said there is actually you know back in jordan uh and i gave the date. you know back in jordan i got shot in the helmet and I had this experience. And I said, I don't understand it. And I don't understand why it's there. I said, I'm assuming you're kind of a Jungian approach to stuff, uh, based on how you talk, and you're not going to, you know, you. chemicals <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> repair me. But I have kind of thought that, and I then exposed. I talked about all of these things that I was calling out of body experiences, because as I was happening, and I, you know, I went to the library and researched it, and there were all these books. You know from yeah can we,
1: can we talk a little bit about those just a few a few and then go back to the psychologist yeah is this is this, this happened between the event in Georgia in Jordan and before you joined the unit, so some yeah. of the strange things around
0: for example, there one night that's very vivid for me uh my son was a small then cub scout, and i they had an outing, and I took him out, and everybody else is setting tents up, and I throw up a mosquito net and I said we're gonna, we're gonna Bivouac like Rangers. He's like, okay. So I mean, I'm laying there with him on my back and he's under my left arm. And uh I'm drifting to sleep. And it, it was I can remember feeling myself come up out of myself and shoot straight up into the sky. And as I was up there in the sky, I was looking down across this valley where everyone was camped. And I was aware of the presence of the moon and the landscape left and right of me what was there and then i had this sense of falling backwards uh and then the next thought i had i was i woke up with him under my arm uh, and so i shared that one i had had about five or six of those episodes before i shared that with that psychologist and when i did uh i re- there was a it was a 50 50 chance i mean he mm-hmm. could have been a union approached it that way uh, or he could have been somebody that would write a prescription, or he could have been somebody that would send me, you know, to the hospital uh, to, to get checked out in some way. He walked over to a big file safe. Uh, these security safes are, you know, four doors high about almost three, you know, 24 inches deep, or maybe 32 inches deep, 24 inches wide. And they spins the dial, opens up the safe, and he pulls out a, blue, a couple of two, three blue folders. And they're numbered sequentially, and they're all stamped, you know, secret real flame or top secret real flame. I think it was secret. And uh, <clears throat> he hands them to me because we're in a skiff. So it's okay. He pulls it out and hands it to me. Uh, and he says, why don't you uh, look these over, and, and and we'll talk about them tomorrow. I'd like to know what your comments are.
1: Okay. let's Let's end on that note. Because the next episode, we're going to talk about your participation in that special access program, Grow Flame. We'll understand what kind of some of the things that you learned going through that process and then your time in as part of the, you know, in the remote viewing unit. So thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to talking with you in the next episode.
0: My pleasure, Sean. Thanks.
1: If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe and I'll see you next time.